Good afternoon, everybody. I'm here to introduce uh, your next guest, who is an icon of cultural resistance. She is uh, a queer, a feminist, and a theatrical powerhouse, and she's very bloody good. Um, please welcome Penny Arcade. Hi. It's a great honor for me to be included here today. Um, I couldn't, I, I had like a bunch of black tights, right? But I didn't take the ones that were used, I took the ones that were new, but you have to weigh six pounds in order to wear them. So I just want you to know that I'm featuring a 1934 Dublin Lassie look. I say that the world has changed, people think I'm talking about a generational thing. They say, come on, Penny, the world has always changed. New York has always changed. If you were 25 years old, you'd think the world was great now. You're just bitter because you're old. You're just being nostalgic. But there is a difference between nostalgia and longing. Nostalgia is a wistful, sentimental yearning, not only for the past, but for who you were in that past. One of the ways that nostalgia functions is it protects us from feeling the reality of who we actually grew up to be, from feeling what we actually settled for. Nostalgia is passive, it's, it's done from a safe distance. Longing is a persistent sense of loss that attaches to ourselves, our history, our values, our desires, desires that are not material. Nostalgia is connected to the past, but we, we long into the future. I was never nostalgic for the 60s. All those demonstrations I went to where the police hit you in the head, all those assassinations. Generations of people stood up against the war, stood up for civil liberties for all people. But the 60s were violent. I was raped five times before I was 18 years old in New York's East Village during flower power. Everywhere I went in 1969, it was a police state. Who wanted that back? I couldn't wait till the 60s were over. I was never nostalgic for the 70s. The clothes were ugly and made out of polyester, and the music sucked. The backlash against the powers of evil dissipated, and the beautiful, Nonviolent anarchist revolution was stopped in its tracks. We were so sad. Beside that, I was in my 20s in the 70s. Who wants to go back to being in their 20s? Only a complete moron thinks that their 20s is the high point of their life. If any of you 
think that the 20s were the high point of your life and you're suffering now, please come and see me after this performance. I can help you. I couldn't wait till my 20s were over. I couldn't wait till the 70s were over. I was never nostalgic for the 80s. That's when the decades started repeating themselves. New York was filled with Euro trash and yuppies and trust funders in the 80s, just like it is now. Yeah, they were slumming in our dive bars, our performance spaces, and our galleries. But at night, they would go home to the posh Upper East Side. At least they didn't want to live in our slums the way they do now. Me and my friends, we spent the 80s taking care of our other friends who were dying of AIDS. We found out, we knew what we could expect from society and the government for the first 10 years of the AIDS epidemic. AIDS is not over. Do not believe the hype. Do not listen to the big pharmaceutical companies. They are lying to today's youth. Protect yourself, protect your friends. They lie about the side effects. I watched all my friends die overnight. And no, I don't feel nostalgic about it. I was never nostalgic for the 90s. The advent of the hipster. Suddenly everybody was an artist. And being an artist stopped being something you actually did and became an identity. In the 60s, we used to say, hey, if everybody just dresses like us and does drugs like us and listens to rock and roll like us and critiques the government and the corporation and the banks like us, the world will be a better place. Well, the hipsters proved that wrong. 1990s in New York, It was like Vietnam, people. You couldn't tell who the enemy was. I'm not nostalgic for the odds, the oddies. What a horrible word. It's like hottie. Is there a less sexy word than the word hottie, really? Hottie? In the 2000s, everybody became an activist. And being an activist stopped being a work you did and became an identity. Hitting like on Facebook is not activism. Discussing the problems of the world with your friends is not activism. Calling yourself an activist, that's like calling yourself a saint. An activist is what your community calls you after decades of selfless, usually anonymous service. You can call yourself a Buddhist without meditating, and you can call yourself an anarchist without going to demonstrations, but you cannot call yourself an activist without acting. In 2000, the decade started to merge. I went to the Yaffa Cafe another long time. New York cultural bastion that's been closed because of gentrification. The waiter had a mohawk, 48 tattoos, multiple piercings, but he was wearing a clean white polo shirt and carefully ironed chino pants. 
I said, the way you're dressed is confusing me. You're sending mixed messages out into the world. What does it mean? He said, what does what mean? I said, the way you're dressed, what does it mean? He said, it doesn't mean anything. That's when I knew that history had ended. I have always lived in the present. I, I don't want to be who I was then. I want to be who I am now on the road to who I'm becoming. I am part of a control group. I was never a brownie. I was never a Girl Scout. I quit school when I was 13. I never went to high school. I never went to university. I never went to art school. I never took a queer studies class, a black studies class, or a woman's studies class. I don't need theory. I live my politics on the street with my body not on a velour couch in a student union with eight other people who took the same class as me. No offense. God bless. I am sex, drugs, and rock and roll. This is what it looks like. I am part of the control group, but I know, I know, I know that I am not the only one. I know, I know, I know I'm not the only one. There is a gentrification that happens to neighborhoods and cities, but there is also a gentrification that happens to ideas. And that is how New York City has gone from being the city that never sleeps to the city that can't wake up. New York City is in a coma, it's in a sugar coma. If they're not eating a macaroon, it's an artisanal gelato. If it's not an artisanal gelato, it's a cotton candy mojito. And if it's not a cotton candy mojito, it's probably a cupcake. New York has gone from being the Big Apple to being the Big Cupcake. There are a hundred cupcake shops in a 10 block radius of my apartment. People are staggering from one cupcake shop to another. A trail of cupcake crumbs across the city. The cupcake is the narcotic of these new infantilized masses. These people want a cupcake the way I want a cigarette. These people want a cupcake the way you want a cocktail. While the cupcake may look innocent, the cupcake is malevolent. The cupcake represents what Hannah Arendt called the banality of evil. The gentrification of a poor neighborhood always starts with a cafe and always ends with a cupcake. Therefore, the cupcake is a tool of oppression. The cupcake represents conformity, self-absorption, selfishness, just like the culture of wealth that has invaded every corner of our inner cities. The cupcake hides the brutality of its entitlement. Being a fascist collaborator has never tasted so sweet. No, Penny, don't say that. I like cupcakes. And there are so many different kinds of cupcakes. And people are finding identity and self-realization through the many varieties of cupcakes that are available now. In the event of an identity crisis, go ahead, consult the guide to cupcakes. Romantic, red velvet. Serious, vanilla. Creative, pumpkin spice. Impulsive, salted caramel. Cheerful, cheerful, cheerful. Are you cheerful? 
When you see people in rags on the street with superating sores, when you know there are people who are happy to spend 18 euros on a cocktail, but they would never flip a quid to a starving homeless person in the street, to be like me from America, with full knowledge that I'm living in a country that has long stopped even pretending to be a democracy. Cheerful, cheerful, cheerful. Lemon berry. What kind of cupcake are you? Yes, the world has changed. But this change is different. This is a change that destroys authenticity. This is a change that erases history. This is a change that creates cultural amnesia. And out there, the wounded spirit of the city cries out and we are filled with longing. I make friends with cities the way other people make friends with people. Maybe it's because my need for solitude and sanctuary has always been so great. As a child in my mother's house, even grown up, I was never allowed to close my bedroom door or be alone for any period of time. Instead, I found sanctuary where they could not follow me. The empty railroad tracks behind my house, the black acid plateau below the dump, the jagged granite outcrop on my way to school high up, my back against the rock, the sun in my face. Spread your wings. Come on, fly We can find many things in other people, but solitude and sanctuary are not among them. No matter how kind, how non-judgmental, or even how silent, not even a lover can hold our solitude or offer a sanctuary. Solitude cannot be shared. It can only shelter one. I know that many people cannot fathom New York City is a place of solitude or sanctuary, but for some of us, for many of us, that cacophon, a scurrying, chaotic place held a holy peace. The asphalt jungle, they called it in the 1960s, boundaried by danger and risk, physical, emotional, cultural, intellectual risk. And we, who needed that raw, unmapped landscape, craved it with a desperation as great as the bleakness that emanated from its haunted streets. You know you're only 22 story block. That bleakness flowed 
and met the desolation of our own hearts, the way the sea washes back into its tributaries. We who fit nowhere else, we who ground to the ignite below our feet, we who fled the myopic, claustrophobic puritanism of America's interior, breathed free though ragged in its harsh embrace. Grab a ketchup, fly it, fly it, try it. Everyone talks about how the world is changing. Well, I may be wrong. But some of us know that the world has changed forever. But something deep in my heart tells me I'm right that I don't think so. There are no more empty places. Secret corners left anywhere. New York City, it, it, it's only a tiny island, like the rest of the cities in the world, like Dublin, like London, like Paris, like Berlin. It too has been mapped, delineated, bought, sold, branded. Time out, Dublin. Time out, Istanbul. Time out, Marrakesh. Time out, Goa. Time out, Jakarta. When I tell people what I miss about New York, people think I'm talking about my youth. They think I'm talking about my past, a past that's been glorified to them. They associate me with that lost glory. Just kids. But I equate that time only with glorious defeat. I know from experience that my point of view is incomprehensible to some people because my point of view was honed by a long exile at the edge of society. But if it gets to you, and it does, and you feel like you just can't go on. Yes, the world has changed. All you gotta do, and you need look no further than the roses. Ring a bell. Haven't you noticed that the roses in the shops have lost their scent? Doesn't that frighten you? William Shakespeare said, a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. And what, pray tell, is the name of the rose now? Incomprehensible.
is that people in Ireland love language. You may be the only ones left. <laughs> They're burning the books one word at a time now. Listen, it takes a lot of people to make this, even a small performance like this, and it's always very important to me to name everyone who worked on this today. <sighs> okay, uh-oh. Of course, the first name I can't say. How would you say it, Dar Darmid? Dermid, Stephen, Bo, Derek, Kelly, Jan, Gary, Effa, Helena, Orla, Diana, Kieran, Jim, Dave, Patty Joe, Dave, Elaine, Heather, Maura, Monica, Adrian, Barbara, Rutha, Emma. Is that another Dermot? No. It has an S T at the end. What could it be? D E R no, oh, it's another Dermot. Of course, there's always more than one Dermot. Always room for another Dermot. <laughs> Kevin, Luisa, oh, Lishna. Yeah. Fiak. No problem saying that. <laughs> Rebecca, Mika, Aaron, and Davey. Thank you. Hi. Hey. Thank you, Penny. Oh. Shall we sit down? I'm going to ask you some questions. Okay. Uh, for anyone that doesn't know who I am, I'm Philip McMahon. I'm a playwright and uh, director. Um, and it's great to have you here in Dublin. Thank you. You're so kind. I love being here. Um, and I was thinking there's... Well, there's and at the Abbey Theatre, excuse me. Sure, listen. Quentin Crisp told me in 1999, never to worry, Miss Arcade. Time is kind to the nonconformist. I was thinking during that performance that this city has gone through massive change um, in the last 20 or so years. And in a way, I'm not sure it was the first time you were here, but you had a show in Dublin 1994 at the Olympia Theatre. And almost everything, like, the kind of incredible change that's happened made this city almost unrecognizable has happened since that time. Well, when I, when I got here in 94, gentrification was well on the way. Um, Dublin was, gen was the first place that I knew of that was gentrified. So this was 15 years ahead of New York, just as London is 15 years behind us. They're freaking out now in London because of the hyper-gentrification. Yes, it's what, what you expect. You know, a certain culture of wealth comes in and wants everything. They even want the slums. Those motherfuckers, because they want everything. It's unbelievable, really. What was the atmosphere here for you um, with the kind of performance you were doing? You were doing uh, Bitch, Dyke, Faggot, Whore. Yes, it in was. In 1994 at the Olympia. Com I don't know if any of you saw it here, but it was a combination of um, political humanism, like all my work, um, cultural crit criticism, and erotic dancing. And it created the international burlesque uh, scene, which I apologize to everyone. Because I'm not interested in burlesque. Burlesque is just sexualized female dance. Who gives a shit? I had real erotic dancers, except for the people I hired in, in Ireland who put on clothes. They kept putting on more clothes while they were on stage. But I've always used erotic dancers in my work because I think it's the most powerful feminist art form. It is the only thing invented by women that controls men unlike the millions of things men have created to control women. But I came here and 
I was first at the Galway Festival, and they weren't going to publicize the show because they thought it was just going to be too scandalous. So they didn't publicize it. And we thought, oh my God, there's going to be nobody at the show. And the show was sold out the opening day. It sold out that day. And the audience was 99% heterosexual, which is exactly the way the real world is because it's 10% queers to you know, 90% uh, heterosexuals. And they were shocked. And the audiences loved it because, of course, human beings are curious about other people. You know, if they're curious about the lives of pandas and the lives of monkeys and the lives of certain kinds of spiders, of course, they're going to also be curious about gay people. That's what Quentin Crisp told me about his, his movie, um, uh, The Naked Civil Servant. You know, he was a very modest man, and he said, well, there were only two TV channels, and somebody said, well, what's on the telly? Oh, the news is on. What's on the other channel? Oh, some poofta talking about his life. All right, we'll watch the poofta. <laughs> but um, I was deeply embraced. And in, in here in Dublin, I did five weeks, eight shows a week at the Olympia. And my audience was North Dubliners, people who could ill afford the ticket price, but they came in droves. And that's where I learned that if you tell the truth and you're funny, you'll go far in Ireland. And a great title gets them in the door, too. Um, in the theatre here, and uh, people will have heard a lot today, there's a massive conversation going on um, about gender imbalance, about feminism, about uh, the role of women in the theatre. And I just wonder, you've had such an incredible career. You've had a massive international career. Um, and never made any money. How do you do that? Tell me, how do you do it? Thank God my immigrant Italian mother sewed in that sweatshop during the 70s, so when I'm 66 next year, I'll be getting $320 a month. Look, here's the reality. The history of all movements, all social movements, whether it's gay liberation or feminism, is the history of one more powerful powerful by economics, powerful by education, by some kind of privilege, hijacking uh, an emerging uh, you know, political identity. Um, I think very few people would argue that my work is very feminist, yet feminists have never written about my work. Why? Because I don't tout the party line. Queer academics never write about my work. Why? Because I don't tout the party line. And just now, as they're talking, everything happens. We're all tethered to the values of the generation that we come of age in. And right now, everybody loves to talk about equality. They love to talk uh, about change. But they want equality for their class. They're not including, they talk about, oh yes, there must be a balance between the directors and the writers and the males and the females. But it will always be the same group that is, has the control. It's not like they're going, let me see who are the most talented women that we can bring forward. Oh gee, today we don't have any talented women? We only have, oh, we have talented men today. Oh no, no, we, 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 we can't have the talented men. No, that won't look good. No, no, the, what, our grant says that we are promoting talented women. I mean, that's, that's what is that called? That's called, um, that has a name. That they, for black people in America, they did it. Yeah, yeah, that's it, the other one. 
affirmative action. I don't believe in that. Because I'll tell you, you, you know, this is theater of change. And social change happens at a glacial pace. It doesn't happen quickly. But the truth is that when social change happens, it is spearheaded always by a group that has nothing to lose and nothing to protect. And I think that's the story of 1916, you know? And I think that while it's trendy to talk about social practice in the theater and it's trendy to talk about, you know, revolution, we still have to look at what's really coming, where it's coming from, because sometimes it's the artist as the common man, in some eras it's the artist as the revolutionary, and sometimes it's the artist as the fascist collaborator. Um. <laughs> uh. In one of your shows, you say, I think it's uh, Bitch Like Faggot Whore, you say, um, I don't want to live in a straight world. Yes. And as, uh, as time goes on, and I'm kind of really thinking about the idea of like marriage equality and the, the kind of, the reach of the kind of um, gay civil rights movement, um, how hard is it to not live in a straight world? How hard is it to well, be a Well, first queer? of all, we have to clear up language, yeah. okay? Because when I, when I wrote that in 1990, um, I'd lost over 300 friends from AIDS. And it was a time of political correctness where uh, a certain segment of gays and lesbians wanted to distance themselves from any kind of loser, outrageous, sexual uh, gay people because they didn't want the stigma of AIDS. And so I was started out mourning in that way. I don't want to live in a straight world. But then, by, that's 1990 when I wrote that. By 1992, I was saying, and in the 60s, when we used the word straight, we didn't mean heterosexual. We meant narrow-minded. And it's that narrow-minded world. Um, you know, we're living in a, in a mono-generational era at no time in history. Is everybody portrayed as being part of a scene? Been portrayed as being the same age, <laughs> okay? You know, aging is seen as failing. And there's no connection between younger gay people and older gay people because they've been sold this idea that they come with the software and that wisdom and experience means nothing. But I think that we're all, that this is a very, very difficult time that we're living in. And people think, oh, you have rights. Quentin Crisp said, Miss Arcade, people don't have rights. If we all got what we deserved, we should starve to death. So I think that while people take these strides as being landmarked and forever, they're not. Sometimes they hand you something because they're doing something else. In America, at the same time as the White House was lit in the colors of the gay flag, they were passing that same weekend the most atrocious um, trade agreement that was giving corporations greater power, greater isolation from any um, probing or any questioning than they've ever had. And they used gay marriage to mask that. And you know, when I was young, and I've been young for a long time, 
the gay world that I grew up in, people, they were radical. They weren't interested only in gay liberation. They were, they were um, anti-racist. They were pro-feminist. Um, I'm talking about faggots. I'm talking about queens, you know? There was a great intellectual discourse. And, you know, the gay world today is not that. It's not that, you know? And I think, like a lot of people, you know, I always say, someone is always gonna be queer. And those of us who think in the ways that I do, and I think in the way that perhaps many of you do, we're in the 1% of that group. We're not that entitled mass of people. I think we've got time for one or possibly two questions in the audience, but we are, they're gonna kick us out of here at half Because Penny five. Arcade can talk the leg off an iron pot. Just pop, pop your hand up if you have a question. You don't have any questions? You don't have to have questions, do you? Oh, there's a question. Yeah. No, pointing oh. there. Oh, sorry. Shout it out. Why orange? Because it's the color of enlightenment. It's the only thing I haven't tried. <laughs> I think we should, we should end, no? Yes, ladies and gentlemen, please. Give it up for Miss Penny Thank Arcade. You, Philip. Thank you, Abbey Theatre, for having me. I'm coming back in the fall with Longing Lasts Longer. I hope you'll come and see it. And you can write me on Facebook if you want. I write to everybody. It's so much easier than working. <laughs>